Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And then there was two. The World Cup is down to its final pair of competitors, France and Croatia, after a fairly pulsating set of semi-finals. And the two men that I've got either side of me to talk about those things are Lawrence McKenna. Lawrence, how are you doing? Am I on which side am I? You're always on my right, buddy. Good. And on my left is none other than Nico Morales, star of the ringer and many other places. Nico, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's so nice to hear Lawrence's voice on the old Skype call. So glad to have him back, even if it's just nice for like 45 minutes. Well, oh, let's... you think you're getting 45 out of this? <laughs> let's... We didn't pay you enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, now the check's cleared. Let's hear a little bit more of Lawrence. Um, yeah. We start, I think, possibly with England, given our own uh, affiliations for obvious reasons. They faced Croatia on Wednesday evening in what was starting out a fantastic result if, if you're a fan of the Three Lions. But then by the end of the evening, it had finished 2-1. Mario Mandzukic had nearly killed a photographer and pretty much the entire country had accepted that it was not coming home just yet. Lawrence, you obviously watched this live uh, with the kickoff and, and everything. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk me through your thoughts of the game? Is this the great opportunity miss that, that so many have kind of built it up? You know what, I, I, I do actually think it is the great opportunity missed, but it doesn't, I, I, I guess it would just separate yourself from the fact that it's a great opportunity missed and just appreciate what it is. I, I know it sounds really um, existential or whatever, but it, I always find it unusual when people go out of tournaments, how upset some people, some drunk people like just crying over what's going on. I, I think the reason that everyone was going on so much about England in this tournament was less, well, at least for me, it was less about the wins and it was meant to be more about what they'd made them feel again and how they'd made them believe and all the, it's coming home sort of thing. And people were extolling all those virtues of, you know, making people believe just because you believe and then it doesn't happen. Surely that's like the point of the, like on a very, on a very massive level, just because you believe it and then it, it doesn't happen doesn't mean that you were wrong to believe in it. Like part of the belief was that that's the important bit. The part of that journey is important. And I think a lot of people are talking about needing this in England and needing it as a country to remind people about the unity that a lot of people feel. I think that's way too poetic. I think it's basically that people found something that they quite liked about a team and that a lot of people have forgotten about um, that element of football because of the the daily sort of grind of 
the way that football is now covered. And suddenly it felt like it was much less like, oh, Liverpool fans are this, Arsenal fans are this, Manchester United fans are this. It felt very much more united. Um, and there was something quite pleasant about that, at least in London. I mean, being in London in a bubble where there's, you know, huge viewing parks and, you know, 30,000 people going to Hyde Park and, you know, it's a, London feels like it's the centre. It, I don't I don't mean to other people outside of London, but I mean, from inside London, people like to feel like London's the centre of it all. And it's like, oh, they're, you know, this great hub of multiculturalism or whatever. Um, but I think in order for all these people to have these thoughts and in order for this to happen, we had to deny a lot of uh, those other things. And that, for me, was the biggest part of what I found good and bad about this tournament. I've enjoyed the positivity, but then I haven't enjoyed being shut down whenever I've wanted to discuss anything but the positivity, maybe. Um, and I found that quite tricky sometimes, especially by some like very legit journalists who almost were pissed off that you were um, going against the idea. Like It's almost like it, it felt like war almost, for, like, but like a happy sort of cheerful war where it was like, we all have to believe if you don't believe you're not doing what you should be doing like why why are you not making making me want to say it's coming home anymore Lawrence like it pissed me off a little bit Lawrence well, was the English approach too arrogant against uh, against the against their semi-final opponents Croatia was that I'll, was that you were getting at uh, no, no I'll be honest I don't think the players were too arrogant I think that the the I- I- ignorance to me often fuels arrogance I don't mean ignorance in the sense of like, oh, you're such an ignorant person. I just mean like sort of blissful ignorance. And I think there was so much of that around with it's coming home and all this sort of thing. Everyone was like, of course, we're going to beat Croatia. We're on the way to the final. And to me, I found that quite difficult. Uh, Chris and I had a sort of a brief discussion last night before I fell asleep about uh, over text um, about, you know, whether Modric was right. And Chris, I said, I text you and I said, I think Modric is right. I think we have been mm-hmm. too arrogant. But then I think you disagreed. But we dis- we sort of agreed that there were elements that were too arrogant. But we also we also seem to also agree that Modric was sort of wrong. Like some people are saying, Modric hasn't heard anything from the British media in years. Like he won't know that much about it. But this for sure is a motivational technique that the Croats are using. But surely, but surely they all have like Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that. And like I was saying to you pre-podcast, I think like what you're saying can be right. Like I think everybody has a different perspective, and arguing about the legitimacy of perspective is something that is just a waste of time. But surely they see some of the, some of the memes. Like I saw some of the Harry Maguire memes before the England Croatia game had even kicked off, and it was it seemed like for I don't know a large majority of the country, a large majority of the fans that the assumption was that they were already there, that they were already in the final. And I'm certainly not insinuating that the players thought that because, you know, the, the representation between the public and professionals is is vastly different. But I think, you know, you can, I don't know, maybe they're not going to read The Guardian or, you know, The Ringer or whatever, like whatever outlet you want to mention. But these guys have phones, like, they can see the, some of the things that we're seeing. And, so and like, I guess they're also seeing comments from people and yeah. fans. And there are going to be a lot of people going below their pictures and saying things in English or whatever. The, the weird thing for me is I don't know how many of those people, I, don't, I know it sounds weird, but how many of those people are fans of England and how many of those people represent England, if that makes sense. like I don't feel like I represent England and I probably could say something online and people would be like, 
oh yeah he represents england because he's like this <laughs> white guy from england like that's english right yeah. like it, but how many of those people were sort of just people who wanted to make memes and sort of spread them you yeah know, like people th- on, on the clock i think like, that's yeah. fandom in general social chain or something like that you know who are like can you photoshop this thing and then we'll put it like that's what i found weird about this world cup is I, I saw the inner workings of a couple of different social media agencies where people are going, we should Photoshop this and then we'll put it out here and then we'll do this. And I was like, wait a minute. So what you're di- doing is like deliberately gaming people's emotions here to make them share something, but you're not getting in on the vibe. You're doing it like cynically so that you can build numbers. And that's been going on for a long time, but it felt more evident when it was like, you're doing this to a nation and not to just a small subset of idiots who support a team that happens to wear a color, you know, like it felt different because they were trying to gain like game patriotism and nationalism, which feels different to being proud of Arsenal or Liverpool. Do you know what I mean? I, th- I think, I think as well, you've got to remember that social media has, I would say strengthened, if not brought together the, just the whole subset of football fans in general, to the point where jokes, humor, that kind of stuff is, is really prevalent. And I think, the whole football's coming home thing, which you know is is very much like a a wheel without a rubber tire on at the minute in terms of it's really burning itself into the ground that in its itself i don't think that was an actual call to arms that the trophy was coming back to England. I think it was more a hark back to euro ninety six when we enjoyed international tournament football I think that to me at least I think that's what it spoke to and this is this is almost the 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 the, the complexity of football supporters as a group is that you're this big homogenous mass, but really your terms and conditions, your ideology is very ill-defined. And See, so I like that. It, I like that idea, and I think it's perfectly genuine. And I think a lot of people felt that way as well. But also at the same time, I think Lawrence made a good point, sort of pre-podcast, which what he was saying was like there are people that have that opinion of the you know the the homogeneity of the idea that brought everybody together in terms of English support. Right. But then you have other people like, I don't know, he, he, you know, he said it or I'll say it like there's, you know, a twinge of whatever they meant to intend when somebody who voted for Brexit, you know, says it's coming home. You know what I mean? Like this general, I don't know, battle cry meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people and not all of it was positive so i mean maybe to ask a more general question to the both of you being english people can you ever really separate that sense of maybe bordering on dangerous nationalism with just a simple support of your country's football team or is that as an as an individual always as an individual always but but that's that's almost the the point that i was attempting to make there is that you you can't really define the intentions of a group because everyone is an individual at their core. They might identify with certain aspects and not others. And I think that's the problem is that in some ways this over-saturation has brought with it um, an over-analysis of the whole situation and a constant need to sort of deconstruct things in a way that I think just loses the point. You know, it's, it's not terribly dissimilar to pulling a pillow apart you kind of realise, actually, there's not a great deal goes into a pillow outside of goose feathers. And I think it's the same thing here. There's not really, I don't think, a huge complexity or hidden complexity behind this uh, idea of but it's coming I, I, home I, and all that stuff. I, I, I agree with that. I guess what, I, what I, I, I'm not actually sort of angry with the idea. I have no problem with it's coming home. I think it's fine. Like, I actually really enjoyed the song when I was a kid. It was really sort of 
you know, it was nice as a sentiment. And I remember listening to it the day after England crashed out of Euro 96 and the guy in class, like the teacher, the day after England crashed out of Euro 96. And I'd watched it in a sports hall with like my dad and five of his friends. And there were like coolers with beers in and they were all just like, you know, chatting. And everyone was, a, it was a very similar vibe apart from the, the, the fact they were facing Germany in the sense of... Did you take one of the beers like, out of the coolers? Uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, Dad, can I have a beer? And I, he was like, you're eight. And I was like, <laughs> cool, man. And I popped it. And, um, and like I remember the day after going to school and the teacher being like, let's have 10 minutes where we just reflect and then I'll play uh, football's coming home and then we'll all get on with work. And like 10 boys cried to that song in class. They're like, they couldn't contain how upset they were. That's fine. Like that was really, it's quite sweet that they, they're sad, but their football team lost. I didn't, I, I don't know about you. I really didn't feel super close to this England team. Like I didn't feel like there was a lot to latch onto in terms of personality in there. And like, um, like anything that I, I looked at and I thought, you know, I really like that. Like I, I looked at that and I thought, yeah, you look like a lot of people that I've met, but you don't. I don't feel like you represent me. Do you, do you think that's because you've sort of, you operate in sort of a way that like you've seen, you see, and you've seen the way the sausage is made in terms of media. Like I get what you're saying, but Maybe. like I think the, I think the idea that, that, that got to a lot a really of people phrase, was that the announce. Yeah, um, no, the no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not kidding. I actually, that's like quite important. Is it's like I have the problem with the way the sausage is made. Is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. I just, I, I just, I guess I meant the announcement video. I know, like for the squad, it was untraditional, and yeah, it may be cliche, like after the fact, but I think it spoke to a lot of people because it has that sense of informality that. I don't know, speaks to a lot of the minorities in the country. And that's not something at the national level for any country out there that we really see acknowledged. And I, I think those sort of gestures are the type of things that I know what you're saying in terms of the, you know, the, the not really the faux personal nature of this national team and specifically this England group. But I think that's kind of what got to a lot of people is that they said, at least, you know, you find, you can find identity within capital. You can find identity with something that isn't genuine. But at the same time, there are, you know, there were genuine elements of things that people felt that they could be attached to, like the attachment video, like uh, abso- you know, absolutely, the absolutely. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I guess it just didn't resonate very well with me. And and the thing is, like, I know then people. The problem is partly that then people go, but it resonated well with everyone, and you're like, well, no, not really. It resonated well with. A very a vast majority of people but there are a lot of people who like me were probably quite cynical about it or like you know maybe just get their value from somewhere else in football like i don't care about those videos all that much or and also it's nothing like i also know some of the people who made those videos and it's not that i'm i, I like those people and i'm saying like you've done well that video has done something really good but we seem to be i guess don't get caught up in this as if this is the pinnacle of what England can achieve, I guess, is part of it. And it, we, it, to me, it seems like because of the World Cup and the way the World Cup happens, and especially in England, everything just gets mushed into like one big message. And it makes it very hard to take anything constructive away from the World Cup. Um, 
I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it's you sort of it's just this one long like amble towards the final. And then it's like, oh, England aren't there again. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I, th- I think ultimately what we can say is that the ceiling for this kind of stuff is, is so small that hearing Danny Rose talk about depression, seeing media days, I can understand why to a lot of outsiders it, it did seem revolutionary is too strong a word. I would go perhaps more like progress or, or, or as if something new was being considered. And I think that bled into the theme because of things like preparing for penalty shootouts, the fact that there was a clear identity. And I think you, that takes I, me I, on. I agree. I, I, I agree with that, Chris. But I also guess I also have a slight problem with it in that if we wax lyrical about this and we become very satisfied with where we're at with that, I don't know how much further it can go than that because it almost it's almost like, right, well, we've gotten to the point now. Right, the conclusion is like, oh, England are open. We have a great relationship with the team. Uh, okay, great. That we've done that bit now. Like that's great. You know, we've spoken about the depression bit. We've spoken about this. Spoken about this. All these boxes were ticked. Right now, let's move forward. And it's like, I don't know if that satisfies me in terms of what I get from the England team. Well, this brings me on to almost my next question, which is the team's identity, its tactical identity. It was very defined very early on. The formation didn't change at any point during this tournament. And in fact, I read in the build-up that Gareth Southgate talked about the fact that the squad and everything was was geared to the fact that it, it wasn't looking to change at any point. It was built so this was the style, this was the way, that was it. And yet, to almost play devil's advocate for a moment, it felt to me last night as if they just didn't adapt to the situation. Half-time hit, I would say they were mostly in control for, for that first half. Croatia come out, they seem to tweak things a little bit. Uh, Frisalco starts to get on the ball a bit more and becomes more of a threat. In general, the central midfield starts to control things. And England just had no response. Is there a, is there a claim to be made, and I'll go to Nico first on this, is there a claim to be made that actually there is a need for England to be a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit more flexible with its style because its players probably aren't, for the most part, Kane aside, world-class calibre or the best five in, in their p- position. I, I get what you're saying, and I think I was having this discussion with somebody uh, telling me that they felt that there was an inconsistency within my analysis between Southgate and, and Martinez. They said that, you know... I, I rag on Martina, you know, Roberto Martinez a lot for being what I call tactically inept, but I was more than happy to applaud Gareth Southgate for, you know, the, the things that he's done for England. And the reason that I say that, and I'll continue to say that in term, in regards to Gareth Southgate, is that I think despite kind of what you're saying there, which I agree with, you know, there wasn't really a lot to go off of, I think, Previous to the Croatia game, eight of the 11 goals that they had scored were from set pieces. There was a one or two more from penalties. So they hadn't actually created a lot in terms of open play. There wasn't a ton there, and there was a lot of there was a lot of noise relative to what they had actually done on the field, right? But at the same time, I think if we're going to kind of quantify it in, in or wax lyrical about it in, in in those kind of terms. I think the 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 fact that this England team, this group of talented young individuals, found themselves at home in a style that was kind of perfect for the narrative of England. Like 
they they were by far and away from me the best counterpressing team of the tournament. And what that effectively equates to is a style that prevents a team from being embarrassed. You know, this has been the theme for England is that they have maybe had the onus of possession. They've been the better team against an Iceland or a lesser opponent. And they just, you know, they were counterattacked upon because that's one of the, the pitfalls of having the team that or being the team that needs to hold the ball. And they were excellent in their ability to counterpress, and that's how they created a lot of chances. That's how they were able to go forward really well. And against the majority of their opponents, it worked. When it came up against a Croatia team that was suited to kind of change to it, they kind of fell flat. And while I think, you know, we can, from an individual game analysis perspective, say they could have done more, they should have done more, maybe the signs were there pre pre match to kind of talk about how they hadn't actually created that much in open play. I think this is a good jumping off point. And I commend Gareth Southgate's ability to do that because I think as easy as me or Dave or whoever the hell else can say it is like to approach a tournament, have a cogent style of football previous to it and, you know, use all the Spurs and Manchester City and Liverpool players in the same way and in ways that they're going to be proficient in terms of a pressing style. It's really difficult to actually do that and get around all the politics and and select the right players in the face of the media and the people and the fans and whatever. So that's why I commend him. And that's why I think Yes, there are criticisms we can have of their lack of adaptability against the Croatia team that I think a lot of people would imagine England could beat. But at the same time, what they achieved up until that point, and even in that game, is to be commended. I think they're, you know, they, they had the ability to reach for a win in that game. Just because it d- didn't come off doesn't mean it was necessarily a failure. Yeah, p- partly. I mean, I, I guess it, it felt to me a little bit muted sometimes. Um and I guess I made the point on the live show last night that I think that it seemed at times like they were just using players in really weird ways and like we were trying to fit everyone into the system but everyone had to compromise something and actually when you look at some of the great teams that have won the World Cup there have been performances where players have maybe compromised so for instance Paul Pogba had an incredible performance where he muted elements the Belgian team but he's not been he's not to do that throughout the tournament and therefore they've played into the incredible strengths that Mbappe has or Griezmann has doesn't seem like that particularly happened with England where it played into what maybe John Stones maybe Maguire but then they didn't shine enough or they weren't given the outlet for their strengths so if their strength is to play the ball and then they play the ball forward but can only play it short to Kane, who's coming short or shorter, then what's the point in having a ball-playing centre-back? Because any centre-back could play that ball to a forward that's coming short. What's the point in that? I'm curious to get your thoughts on Jordan Henderson as well, Lawrence, as a Liverpool fan more specifically, because you'll have seen more of him than, than any of us. Personally, I was a little bit let down by his passing last night. I thought he was a bit yeah, quick, yeah, a bit overawed, he sort of... It was just a couple of yards sort of too hard or too hit. Long term, I think it's fair to say we need a player in that position to be creative, to be able to hit those passes. Do you have confidence that he can fill that role for, for England long term? Because we did see Dyer come on, but but truth be told, I wasn't massively impressed with Dyer. And, and Henderson still is only just 28, he turned 28 last month. So he's got, I would say, at least until the next Euros in him. It, it, do you have confidence he can fulfil this role and maybe refine the process almost moving into to that next tournament? 
do you feel a little bit like I guess he was sort of in that role because there was no one they didn't have anyone really who fitted that role I mean he's played very well don't get me wrong I think he's done very very well in that role uh, and I actually think he's really he's carved it out quite well for himself but I still feel you know if you're a manager or you're looking at transfers come the end of the season you're still thinking that's maybe a player we can switch out for someone who could play that role a little better or you almost think, I mean, for, for, throughout the tournament, Dave was crying for two people sitting at the base of midfield. Um, but the, again, the system almost sort of forced him to do elements of that. And I think technically, we all know this about Jordan Henderson, technically he's a fantastic player. A lo- loads of people talk about how, you know, in training he's always technically the best player, which will make him very good. Is it, is it just always that, there's always that slight tinge of, yeah, but there could be so much more done with that midfield three if it was a different shape or if it was a different three or an orientation of that three. Mm. Well, that's the, the midfield three. It's been is... good though. Don't get me wrong. I, th- I think it would play very. I think it would be great alongside uh, Fabinho and a Cato. Uh, they probably won't even play them like that. But mm. you know, he'll be great as part of a midfield three for Liverpool. Mm. And midfield three was pretty integral for Croatia last night. Um, Brozovic, Rakitic and Modric. It's amazing how many of those Croatian players end with the itch uh, suffix. Yeah, suffix. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's certainly a funny one. They seem to, to really propel Croatia forward. I mean, in fairness, you could pick out Mandzukic or Perisic as well. They were very good. Um, just kind of looking forward to the final for a little bit there, Nico. You would point to that midfield as being key battle as it is with any game do you have any confidence that Croatia can win that with the quality that they possess because like I say to be fair to them they didn't dominate this one from start to finish they were they were quiet in the first half against a, an English midfielder I would argue is is not that well balanced or, or well put together itself in truth yeah but I think um you know Michael Cox kind of put it really well it's like as soon as he said it it, it came to fruition which speaks to his level of expertise but um he kind of talked about the 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 on-running croatian fullbacks and and the prominence of sort of the wide areas in general and yeah croatia were quiet in the first half england dealt with a lot of crosses they had really well but in the second half those lower crosses across you know that back three uh for england even though i think those guys did as well as they could have done from a defensive aspect it was just really difficult to stop those late runs and i think that's where croatia really came into their own they created a lot of chances in the second half and that stemmed from both the midfield and the wide areas so yeah i think it's entirely possible that they steal a world cup and i put it like that because france are still my favorites they've been immense and i'm sure we'll get on to talk about them and their strengths and weaknesses and whatever and the system and i have my own opinions on deschamps but at the same time you know they they are where they are not entirely because of luck i know i kind of downgraded their goodness because of how many pk shootouts they've won and you know those kind of things can go either way it's not entirely up to skill like it's a skill to win a penalty shootout and to kick a penalty but not all of it is skill um but at the same time you know i think you know they're they're not it's not gonna be the easiest thing in the world even paul pogba said uh, i think in an interview earlier today or yesterday that you know in 
in the Euros at the Euro 2016, they thought they had won the final before it had even begun against Portugal because they were such an unexpected team. And I think similar things can be said about this Croatian team. But he said they're not going to make that same mistake this time. They're not going to overlook their opponents. And I think that's the right mindset to have against the Croatia team that is good and um, can, can produce some, some great things both from wide areas and central areas. Yes, dangerous from wide and central areas. That's the perfect team in essence, really, isn't it? One that's dangerous from from wide and central areas. I think that's something that could easily be levelled at our other finalists, which is France. They obviously managed to overcome Belgium um, in what was a cagey affair, I think, at times. It, it certainly um, was one for the tactical purists. Um, the pass maps made for intriguing reading which I'm sure all our listeners will be enthralled to hear, but that's not probably what we'll talk about. That's, yeah, Nico's got a Twitter account for all that stuff. You can follow that in your own time. Um, the Mbappe was good, put it that way. Yes, there's a perfect place to well, start. Well, maybe, maybe that's, the, that's the thing there. Like, I don't know. I've had an opinion about Deschamps, and it's been not great, but at the same time, I don't know. Maybe it's too reactionary to just have a change of opinion because he's in the World Cup final. But there's been so much expectation around him because of the talent that this French team has to play an attacking style of football, right? Like that's what people, myself, other people that maybe look at the game tactically or analytically have sort of been poking fun at is the fact that we haven't seen this explosion of of French, you know, excellence, despite the fact that they literally have probably one of the most complete squads to ever grace international competition. And yet they're playing this super defensive style of football that, you know, is just kind of boring. It's not super exciting. The most exciting moments we've gotten are from Kylian Mbappe and they seem completely individual and not systemic. But at the same time, if it's gotten this very talented group of, of, of French players to two finals now, both a Euro and a world cup, I can't really fault that approach despite you know, maybe me wanting to see something else, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not how I would have done it, but I think that doesn't necessarily delegitimize the way that they've done it. So I don't know. Well, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah I mean, you've managed to again, answer a question I haven't had a chance to ask yet, but with, with <laughs> sorry, this, I got excited there <laughs> with this French side in, in particular, Lawrence, Nico raises a good point there. Is the expectation something that we've generated because of the names we see. And is it even fair to generate that? Because actually, there's a pragmatism towards Deschamps, who, again, has has taken this team also to a, a Euro Championships final as well in 2016. Granted, that one didn't go as expected. But two finals in two years. Is, the, is, is this more a situation of us putting needless expectation? Or is it too much history or soon to be history being written by the victor and Deschamps and him being heralded as a great coach when maybe he could be doing more I think a lot of people have edged I think you know a lot of the time it's down to the team the fact that this team have edged it um in even against Belgium I think they were very fortunate not to um concede again um I I think the the thing with this, they are the youngest team on average at the tournament. I think that's a decent point to make. The other point is, I think they're also filled with a lot of people who fit very well together because of the, the relationships and links that those guys have. And if ever team spirit within a France size, with any side, but especially within a France size, the side was important, then I think that that, that plays a huge part for France. You know, these guys... 
um, the the image of the team is incredibly important in France, and I think that after the complete deconstruction and breakdown of the way that the team was built over all these years, partly because there was a breakdown between the, you know, the 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 older sort of almost the, the the generation that Deschamps was sort of part of and the younger generation of people who felt disillusioned and some of them maybe the people who felt like they were marginalized within French society the fact is now that they feel that there's a different feel to this side and it almost feels like the guys who were once marginalized or looked marginalized are now the face of that side um, and there's something quite compelling about that and it means that the team play with a different kind of verve to the one that we've seen before um and i think there's something quite exciting about that and i don't know if it's always tactical the reason that the this uh maybe not tactical in the same way as we maybe we see it in the premier league do you know what i mean it's not like a sort of a full press it's not it's not like you know we're going to impress the fuck out of this team it's more just like oh look they, they put matweedy on the left wing and it worked like, well, that's a great point, actually, Matuidi on the left wing, because if I can dabble into the tactics analytics for a second, I hope I'm using this word correctly. Um, the pass map for Belgium was fascinating to me because it basically, there was a big fat line all the way to Charlie from Alderweireld, which it would seem, to me at least, without wishing to do causation and correlation and all that malarkey, that France were almost encouraging Belgium to run it down that side because they probably realised that Chadley was that weak link. Is that a fair assessment to, to make, Nico? And if it is, do we then have to give Deschamps credit? Because it would seem that he sort of took a little bit of a lesson from previous games and, and essentially identified Chadley as this weak link that, that could be exploited by almost being given the ball, which sounds really harsh on Chadley. I'd have to rewatch the game to see because I didn't pay that much attention to it but I'd have to rewatch the game to see if what you're saying is entire like I mean it might be I'm I'm just saying from my own perspective like I don't know if that's something that they were genuinely doing it's happened before other teams have done it like they've allowed a team to enjoy a certain amount of space in a certain area because they knew it wasn't gonna lead to a super great chance but I think I think that's just that's kind of the reason I have a criticism of Roberto Martinez is that whether or not France was doing that intentionally because they didn't see much of a risk to allowing Chadley to have the ball, it didn't come off because you it's it's not FIFA. It's not football manager. You can't just put Nasser fucking Chadley on at right back and it's just going to work. Like it doesn't happen like that. He this is why I don't really have a whole great deal of respect for Roberto Martinez because even after a game against Brazil, which I know a lot of people have opinions about analytics and metrics that quantify chance quality and stuff like that but they should really not have won that game and the first thing he says after the game is i've never lost a game on the tactics board it's just down to the execution no you got your tactics wrong you just got lucky that's that's the long and a little bit of both he he literally (laughs) had sometimes the one could influence the other maybe (laughs) yeah i mean but it's just i don't know for me it's that's that's why maybe and this bleeds into the point that I was talking about with Deschamps like you said you know could he be doing more and I think that's a genuine question for any manager but I don't see what more he what much more he could be doing in terms of performance because he's gotten this team to two finals now and like I said we will all want to see attacking football especially when a team clearly demonstrates the ability to do so given their talent but at the same time as I wrote about for the Ringer very early on in the competition like 
there's so much more of a danger to being a team like Germany or Spain or France or whoever that has a ton of talent and just piling 11 players onto the ball and trying to break down a team that doesn't want to come out of its shell. There's so many dangers to that. You can get pounded 5-0 despite you know being worlds better in terms of talent. Deschamps has circumvented that very difficult disadvantage to being a favorite by being defensive. And I might not like it. People might not like it, but it's it has gotten them to two finals now, and that is success. That's success. True. You have some very strong opinions, Nico. The follow-up question I have is, do you think with that then that Roberto Martinez is probably not the person to take this Red Devils to the, the next tournament or forward into the future? Uh, yeah, I think no. Like I think you asked me a similar question about... Uh, Yogi Lowe, when we found out that he wasn't going to lose his job, I think it's it's in the same light. Like Yogi Lowe took the right approach to that to the to Germany for the tournament. They were relatively unlucky with the chances they didn't score. They were really good from an attacking perspective. They just came up some against some really difficult opponents, and they had some unlucky draws and some unlucky games. The opposite is true for Bruno Martinez. Like he was very lucky. He hasn't relied on a cogent style of play with a very talented team and i think there's some combination not every you know to speak in absolutes i think is to ask for yourself to be proven wrong there's some of the things that he's done that have led to some success with this belgian team but if you're asking me if i think their you know best generation ever relies in the or lies in the best hands with him it's Certainly not. I don't. I don't think he's the right person to kind of take them forward and be more successful. I think this is where they kind of need to leave him and get somebody else. Well, there you have it. The future of Belgian football decided on this podcast. The future of French or Croatian football, obviously, will be decided at the weekend with the final of the World Cup. This game for me poses an interesting debate, just because, as we talked about there before, France have not really tried or almost felt comfortable in certain games dominating the ball they've been quite happy to give up possession I think even in that Belgium game they, they didn't dominate the ball by any stretch against Croatia you would argue they're not really a counter-attacking side for my money correct me if I'm wrong how do you see that aspect of the game playing out do you expect Nico or France to be more aggressive with with the way that they play the ball or do you expect them to to almost treat the game a bit like they did with Uruguay and games like that where they were kind of happy to, to be broken down and then exploit what space is, is left from, from a, an opponent's attempt to do that. I think they're going to go for the more balanced approach. I think they have the ability to maybe trick Croatia into having more of the ball than, than they're comfortable with or the, than they probably should have. But I still think they're going to stay with this mantra of being exceptionally defensive and just frustrating the opponent because just the nature of an international tournament and a tournament that's formatted in this way, especially in a final, kind of panders towards that. Obviously, they're not going to play for penalty kicks, but Croatia, realistically, they want to score. They're going to want to have the upper hand so that they can then kind of sink into a defensive shell and be the team that has maybe more of an advantage in a game state. They want, they will want to go forward. And if Spain, or sorry, not Spain, uh, Freudian slip there. Um, if France give them the opportunity to have some space in their in their final third or in the midfield, which I think they probably will, then I think they're going to want to take that more balanced approach so that they can unleash Mbappe, they can unleash Antoine Griezmann and and these other immense talents. So I think they'll probably be defensive slash, you know, fifty fifty kind of balanced. 
And and just briefly as well, the the way we saw the game with with England play out was Rajalko on the right, and then with France against Belgium, it was Matuidi and Teo Hernandez almost serving as as a very defensive left hand side. Would you want to keep that the same if you're Deschamps? Because it would seem to me that Frischalco is, is a fairly dangerous attacking outlet for the Croats. Yeah, I mean, they've a lot of people, including myself, would say that they haven't used their best fullbacks, and that can be like the fulcrum of any defensive side. Is you can have really a, a good upside of unexpected attacking, uh, an unexpected attacking outlet from an overlapping fullback, and. If you're going to play that way, then why wouldn't you want to play Benjamin D? Why wouldn't you want to play Sidibe? Those guys are excellent, but they've used the more defensive uh, Hernandez and Pavard because it's offered them the defensive solidity, but at the same time, an element of attacking play that has served them, um, especially with Olivier Giroud up front. So I think they'll probably continue to have that same back line. And obviously, Umtiti and Varane have been imperious. So mm. And... Someone else who's been in Piri's Lawrence, Mr. Kylian Mbappe. Now, for those of our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of seeing your XO mini doc, you actually went to the young man. Which is excellent, by the way. Seriously, it's excellent. Mm, it, it it's, it's, it's pretty all right. I would say uh, in discussing it in post, you know, every documentary can always be more detailed. Um, but I think what was the interesting side for me was just going to a place and being like, oh, look, this is what happened here. Like, you know, that. I think there's something quite interesting about Mbappe and maybe uh, Pogba and uh, Kante as well. Just mm. seeing where people grew up is always fascinating. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't have gone to those places without Kristen having found the addresses. So <laughs> I appreciate the uh, the kind words. With that said, though, you've obviously been to um, Mbappe, Kante, Pogba's sort of hometowns where they grew up. Do, yeah. Has that given you a greater insight into to Mbappe, specifically the intrigue around him? Because the thing I keep hearing sort of levelled at him is, God, any mature, any any so level-headed for someone who's being thrust onto this stage. Are you able to explain that now, having been to, to Bondi and seen things up close? Do you know what I always find interesting is whenever you think of um, any capital city, you always think of the very centre of it. And you never think of the suburbs or very rarely if you don't. I mean, when you don't come from that place, like, you know, I'm, I live in London for 10 years. Like, of course, I think of every different part of London when I've been there. But like, you know, when you go to Paris, I, I was going to make this point in the video. But it's very difficult to express. You think of the, the square mile in the middle of it, which is the Eiffel Tower, Champs-Élysées, um, you know, Louvre, the, the big the big things that you go and see. And, you know, the beautiful river that runs through the middle. And we remember the headlines on the TV from 2000, the early 2000s, 2005 was a very big um, flashpoint, I think it's fair to say, um, around Paris. I think a lot of people now talk about how there is still a lot of racial tension in the country, how, you know, if you know some French families or you're close with some of them, some of them will just very generally make sort of a a a joke, which maybe in the 80s in England would have been considered uh reasonable but would definitely be considered unreasonable now it's that what's the french for bernard manning essentially exactly yeah and bernard manning is uh for american or anyone um he's like he's like really racist comedian um but someone that your dad would like i think i'm making a kid's reference um so uh, basically i then spoke to andy brassel who both of us sort of wrestled with the idea of two white guys trying to express what black people are going through in a suburb 
And um, it was interesting because personally, I don't think many people really know um, outside of maybe a couple of people who go. And that really made me want to go back and actually find out because some people in the comments of the video were sort of saying, um, you don't really know what goes on here. Like you spent a couple of hours in the suburbs. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't go to like go and find out where the cars were burning for hours. But when I went there, I didn't see any evidence of issues. And maybe the problems come at night. Maybe I didn't go to the right streets. Maybe I didn't go to all those areas. The point is, actually it gave me more respect for the guys that I now see on the French international team because mm -hmm. they are painted as these hard city boys. And you know what? They probably could have taken the train to France. They probably did do that. And that there's an incredible amount of growing up, which comes with leaving home at a very young age, which is what Mbappe did to be able to go to Clairefontaine, which is what Pogba growing up in, in, um, Wassy-en-Brie will, will have done. And, you know, which is, but what I was surprised about was the leafy areas they grew up in and the incredibly sort of sleepy, nice vibes that you got while you were around there. Like where, if you've uh, ever been to East London, which I know two people on this podcast have, that's the closest comparison that I can come up with to where I thought Mbappe grew up. There okay. were not very, there were, you know, it wasn't, there were not very many suited people. There were not very many sort of hipsters. It was much more, what looked like families who were from uh, many different backgrounds wandering the streets when we came around because it was the end of school, the school day. And it was sort of nice because we're walking around thinking, ah, oh, there's like 11 year olds, 12 year olds here. That's the time that Mbappe would have been here. Like there's something quite nice about that. And you get to the club and it's this lovely little like running track with a nice little football pitch in the middle. And you can imagine kids running around in it in the middle. And the same then when you got to where Pogba grew up was like, there's, massive blocks of flats and there's a football pitch and that's like the two things which exist in that town and, and you can imagine like you can literally imagine him walking down the road playing football and going back and chilling with his friends and when I there are bits which I don't really include because I don't really know how to include them there was a lovely bit where I'm walking around and one guy thinks I'm genuinely asking him like is Pogba here today and he's <laughs> like no he's not in he has too much money to live here now and I was like Okay, well, we've not we've not definitely communicated <laughs> efficiently, but it's it's interesting because there's also it's so different to any blocks of flats that you see in England. Mm. It was like there were groups of people hanging out outside it and almost having like a a nice time, and that's very different to the way that it was in the UK. So it's very insightful to go there and see the different ways that people grow up, um, and not you know Pogba is this incredibly polished. Like Mbappe's got like you know he's Paris Saint-Germain which is like you know the cool amazingly well-branded team and actually there's something incredibly endearing about the fact that Kante and all and Mbappe and Pogba and all these guys who come from the banlieue all grew up in like leafy little sleepy areas and have all taken an element of that with them which which seems quite to me quite pleasant and quite nice mm. and I don't think I expressed it nearly well enough in the documentary anime but I think you get sort of flashes of that coming through that it's a feels much more like a small town and almost nothing like Paris it feels so much more like France than Paris. Yeah, it, I think that's the one thing that I took away from that, especially when, when our good friend Andy Brasso was talking, is, is whether then potentially winning the World Cup will have ramifications for sort of cultural integration in France. I mean, you would have hoped the 98 World Cup would have done that given how many players hailed from 
Africa and things like this. You had Desais, Zidane, etc. So it's it will be, I think, possibly an interesting cultural reference point if they do win it. But obviously, it would be incredibly presumptuous to expect them to win it. I think they have to yeah. to go and play first. And and that's almost my curiosity for for you, Nico. Is we've talked about how good this France side are. I have to confess, I even tweeted, I can't see them losing personally. How do you get at this France side? How do you expose them? Because they've been very good defensively. On an attacking standpoint, they look razor sharp. There's just not really an obvious weakness to to me when I watch them. Chris, if I knew I'd be in a job in Croatia or at another national team. Um, But I think maybe to kind of seriously answer your question, I guess the the best way would kind of be to frustrate them because obviously I kind of talked about how defensive they are and how committed to being defensive they are, but they have the disadvantage of, like I said, being the team that is technically better, much better in this Mm -hmm. case. So if I were Croatia, I would, I would really not indulge them at all. I would try to have the ball as little as possible. And then when they do have the ball, when they try to pull the team out, when they try to stretch Croatia's defensive block and, and pull them up the field by having the ball with their talented ball players of, in Varane and Mtiti who have been really good, not just in a defensive sense, but in moving the ball forward when when space was there to be exploited. I would really try to press them high and, and use those opportunities to, to get at them because as good as they have been, I think there are gaps there to expose. And given the fact that Deschamps probably won't play it in Zanzi, which I think is kind of the key to this side, like if they wanted to be this attacking brilliant team that we want them to be, I I imagine it would be within Zanzi because of his ability to progress the ball from defensive lines to offensive ones. He's not going to play him. So I would wait until that moment, wait until the proper time to strike. And then as soon as it presents itself, use those players that know how to press Mandzukic, Kovacic, Modric, Rakitic, all these guys have play in these elite pressing teams. So use that, use that to your advantage and uh, try to get the ball because that's really the only way you're going to score. There you have it. That's the only way they're going to score. Gents, I feel obligated to push you both for uh, a prediction. Nico, start with you. How do you see this game going? I think it'll be a France 1-0. A France 1-0. Interesting. Lawrence, what about yourself? I find it very difficult not to see Croatia scoring through someone like a Mandzukic or someone like that. Um, It's been a great defensive uh, performance from France at times, but I think it's going to be 2-1 in the end. Like It just seems too... Uh, finals very often can get away from teams but I, I I think Croatia sort of see this as their big chance and I think France there are a, a few minimal soft underbellies in, in there that they can get at mm, Absolutely it's, it promises to be a fascinating final if only be, I think because of the, the duality of the two because you've got France on one side with Clairefontaine and almost the industrialised talent line production that they are and then Croatia which is this I don't know. That I've read a few different pieces of late that have basically sort of said that there is no reason for this Croatia success. There's no, there's no rhyme to it. it. It's all just essentially the aligning of stars and nothing else, which I think is, it's, is it's just, beautiful. Just the right time. Like I was looking at where where all these players are playing, and I was like, these are all top European teams. There's two Inter Milan players in there. There's a Liverpool player. There's a uh, Roman. Real Madrid, Barcelona, and whoever uh, who is sitting at the base in the field. Yeah, there's play? a shit Liverpool player in there as well. Uh, and and there's uh, and there's Dejan Lovren. 
um, <laughs> I think you guys are forgetting is one of the greatest <laughs> centre backs in the world. According, to you know what? I genuinely feel like the, uh, I'm, I, and I'm going to put this uh, politically very correct. The the Croats were high on life after the game, um, just hyper aggressive with everything they were saying. And Deja and Lovren just came out and went. I don't think you guys respect me enough. I'm one of the best centre-backs in the world. After literally one of the worst games he's had in a very long time. Like, Dejan Lovren deserved minimum of a yellow in that game. If not minimum. a red card. Minimum of a yellow, yeah. 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 He did look unsettled by the pace of Raheem Sterling. But he's one of the best centre-backs in the world, you disrespectful journalist. This is the thing. History is written by the victor. And for all that uh, he looked... <laughs> he will not be writing it then. Uh, for all that he looked burdened, uh, Mr. Lauren, he did emerge victorious. Um, I don't think he'll be getting another chapter for that history book come Sunday, though, unfortunately. Um, but we'll have to see. The, the thing you can bank on definitely is that we'll be back with more analysis, more brilliance, and more stuff. With we're, that we're the best podcast in the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, you'll not find a better podcast with three in the title. I promise you bloody that. Um with that said, it's been a pleasure to have you two gentlemen uh, flank me tonight. Uh, Nico, is there anything our fine listeners can read from yourself? You're becoming a bit of a regular at The Ringer these days, as I understand it. Um, maybe not at The Ringer, but I wrote something for The Athletic. I talked about how big men have, sort of traditionally big men, have played a, a prominent role in this in this World Cup. So if you want to check that out, um, that's over at The Athletic and on my Twitter feed. And I'm sure on the front three feed as well at some point maybe i'll retweet it right after this that sounds like a great idea that sounds like a genuinely great piece can't imagine where you got that idea from (laughs) lawrence you're everywhere and not nearly enough um what are you doing at the i don't write articles i don't write articles where can i see Um, your face i was thinking about doing it uh you can see me on xo you can see me on um you know what i I just really uh, we don't have a video coming out this sunday we meant to shoot something and it didn't come off um we don't have a video coming out this Sunday, so I'd encourage people to at least just come watch. Uh, basically, me on holiday in Paris. Um, it's a lovely little 10-minute video that I edited down to make look like a serious documentary or docu- uh, sort of, what's this? What's the uh, Gonzo documentary. You know what I mean? Um, there you go. That's me. It's not a documentary about Muppets. I didn't know you were uh, doing porn now. Wow, that went from and PG to X-rated pretty quick. Um, went from PG to XL, baby. Nice, Good. very nice. Um, on that lovely note, I will say goodbye. Enjoy your football, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.